Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Diversity Ally, the podcast. And this week's special guest is Essie Hardy, founder, owner and managing director of Celebrating Disability. Essie is a trainer, disability inclusion expert, public speaker, podcaster, writer and all-round general badass. We loved having her on the show this week. And actually, it was really interesting to draw parallels between Essie's previous career as an actress and the type of role she was typecast into as an actress with disabilities. And in fact, how even now in the modern working world, we're all still being typecast or given identities by others. And this really needs to stop. We also look at whether in real life, hybrid or virtual events can really be inclusive if they're not accessible. We chat about many things this week and we really hope that you get stuck in and enjoy. so excited to have Essie Hardy on this episode of the Diversity Ally podcast and well obviously I love everyone who comes on the show obviously uh, but I was just saying to Essie before we started to record our convo that your content on LinkedIn is truly enlightening for me even as a practitioner to hear about um, disability inclusion from a very real and practical perspective. So Essie, please introduce yourself to our listeners. Well, thank you very much for that lovely introduction. So hi everyone, I am Essie Hardy. I'm Managing Director of Celebrating Disability and the Disability Inclusion um, Community. And my role is to be to support businesses to be inclusive of disabled people in the workplace. I think there's a load of great work going on um, for diversity and inclusion in general at the moment, mainly um, for women and mainly for people of ethnic minority, but there's not a lot going on for a lot of other yes. groups of people. And one of those groups are disabled people. Um, and before this conversation, I was just having another conversation with somebody and talking about the problem I think is that people feel as though they have to categorize individuals and put them into boxes. And then they wonder why they're not getting anywhere. But I think we forget the holistic view that actually we don't just fit into one box. I mean, I always say I am a woman, but I'm also disabled and I also mix race yes. and I identify as all of that. So I want to bring, you know, if we're talking about bringing our whole selves to work, I want to be able to bring every part of myself to work. And I want to be able to feedback on comment on every part of my experience as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that, you know, because one of the things you do talk about very well is intersectionality. That's essentially what you're talking about. And quite often people yeah. will ask, what is intersectionality? And, and actually it is the fact that as most, most human beings, nearly every human being occupies more than one identity at some stage in their life or another. Mm -hmm. You know, you're never really fixed as a human being. Our experiences, the way we identify, our choices, etc., are quite transitory at times. Yeah, and I, you know, only thing that's true, and it's, it doesn't have to be these big things that we put under the categories of diversity and inclusion. It can be the small things like our wants and our desires, and our like and our dislikes, and and our family situation, and whether we prefer to be on our own or with other people, what we like to eat, what we don't like to eat, where we go for holidays. So I think when people think of this subject, they think it's 
a massive deal. Well, I mean, it is a massive deal. I'll take that back. They think <laughs> it's a really, really difficult, tough thing to overcome that they couldn't possibly identify with. But I think if people start start remembering that actually everybody identifies with um, being a human being and having likes and dislikes um, and having particular ways that they they feel as though they're part of a community it's easier then to support and identify that yeah absolutely you know it's funny because this morning i was having a conversation with uh, a peer in the industry and um you know we'd never we'd spoken many times before you know over the over virtually in this day and age so virtually <laughs> and we'd not really had a conversation about our respective backgrounds you know and how we got to this place right now and so this morning it came up and although we may appear to be similar, we're actually very different because mm. of our respective backgrounds, where we've lived, who we've worked with and what we do for a living, for example. And I remarked, you know, and I said, look, unless you have these conversations, you don't really realise, you know, both the, the goodness that people can bring because of their unique perspective. So talk to me a little bit about your background and how you came to do the work that you're doing right now. Yeah, okay, so my back, oh my gosh, where do I start? <laughs> so I actually started as an actress about 20 years ago. It, what that's scary, isn't it? 20 years ago, God. Um, so yeah, no, I started and I trained as an actress and I worked kind of in different countries and everything. Um, and then I kind of, I worked, you know, I did that for about, you know, training and working all together for about 10 years. And I kind of migrated into um, teaching and training others, right. um, mainly disabled people. And what I, what I found at that time was that people, the disabled young people that I was working with didn't have a platform, they didn't have a voice to say how they felt about being disabled themselves. And so when we were devising plays that they would then perform to friends and family, a lot of the, um, the improvisations and the plays that we were devising were around exactly that, around, you know, this is how I feel and this is the message that I want to give. And I thought that was really important and it kind of helped me start to identify myself as being a disabled person and I know that sounds really silly because I am a disabled person and I haven't acquired a disability I've had a disabled I've had a disability my entire life but for I grew up in the 80s um, and I also grew up in a white family in a white community and as I said I'm mixed race um, and my dad was kind of in and out my life a little bit but not very much so I wasn't very influenced by that side and you know my family were trying to do their best for me and so the messages I were getting that was that oh you know it's despite your disability that you're doing this you're really good despite the fact that you're disabled um, and you can grow up just like us and it doesn't matter that you're disabled we can forget about that and so I kind of through that, through that kind of conditioning, there wasn't anyone's fault. I kind of, uh, I kind of grew up believing that disability was bad, and I hated my disability, and I was really angry about my disability. And so when I was working with these children, one of the things I began to realise about myself is that actually I identified like this as well. And yeah, no, I agree with you. Oh my gosh, this is really bad. Um, I want to do something. And so I kind of, it started my 
I don't know, journey for want of a better word, to being kind of okay with who I was. And I kind of went through a few other careers. But just before setting up Celebrating Disability, I um, I worked for a charity in Hampshire um, that supported disabled people to make life choices. Um, so it was a care home um, and also a care facility so people could get care in their own house and it supported disabled people into employment as well um, and it was also a housing provider um, and my role first of all was to support those disabled people that lived in the care home to make choices for themselves um, and to understand that they actually had a choice because a lot of the disabled people had always lived in care so they didn't know that they had those decisions that they could make themselves so also it was training the staff to support people to feel empowered about who they were and to make those decisions and then I was promoted to the head office which doesn't isn't as smart as it sounds because it was about two steps away from where I was previously um, but it was good um, to support the organization to be more inclusive of disabled people um, so breaking down those barriers that people think about disability um, improving the recruitment processes so that more disabled people could apply and fundamentally be part of that workplace culture right and like that so here's this is interesting okay because where you've talked about your realization or not identifying yourself now, would you say that prior to that point, did that impact in any way the types, because you were an actress, and by the way, you have this amazing kind of TV radio voice, by the way. <laughs> um, but would you say that the outlook you may have had at that time impacted the jobs or careers that you chose? Does that make sense? Is there a difference, yeah, I guess, is my question. Sense. You know, it absolutely makes sense. I'm just considering. Um, no, it's hard to answer because I want to say no, but who knows? I mean, maybe yes. So I think that's a really interesting question because I want to answer no, but who knows? It might be yes. I think it's a no that it didn't determine the role that I wanted to do. But actresses are, um, on actors in general, are um famously introverted people and they become actresses and they and actors and they perform because they can take themselves out of who they are and be a character mm -hmm. so who knows if that's why i went into acting what i knew at the time is i wanted to be famous Okay. Um, and I wanted to have a house next to Robbie Williams. So again, the fame, I mean, I don't think the Robbie bit has anything to do with it, but he is just beautiful, so I'm not ashamed. Um, but the fame bit, perhaps that comes from not thinking I was seen. Right, right. That's really interesting. And also, can I ask, because often when acting um, is spoken about, typecasting is also spoken about. Was that something that you experienced during your acting career? Absolutely. I can't tell you the amount of auditions I would go to and then they would say, but you're disabled. Mm. And I'd say, but you just want me to be a wife or you just want me to be a daughter. A daughter or a wife can also be disabled. Shock horror. Um, but, you know, oh, but we can't possibly do that because you're disabled. Mm. Um, and that happens so often. And then I started getting typecasted in roles where it was a very charitable role. <laughs> So right. it was like a person looking forlorn because they didn't have any food in the fridge 
or you know something like that and I was like you know disabled people can have food as well have you seen my belly um you know disabled people they they really do want to podcast and they do really want to categorize mm. and they they found it hard to think outside of the box so even when I was trying to say to them you know, I might have a disability, but it doesn't mean that I don't have these feelings or identify in this way as well. It, I could see that the clogs were going, but they couldn't make, you know, yes. make that leap in their own head. So this um, is really I did have, Sorry. No, go on, please. And I was going to say, I did have some quite really, you know, for the time, forward-thinking directors um, and casting directors that really helped me get along. I mean, I found... I found it easier to get roles and be accepted in America right. um, than in this country. And I also found it easier to be accepted and get roles with people that already knew me. Right. But if I was turning up an audition to people that didn't know me, um, it was almost like a non-starter. Right. Now, this is really interesting because often we talk about inclusive inclusivity in the workplace. Mm-hmm. And obviously for the events industry, um, inclusivity in terms of marketing. Now there's a brilliant, so besides you, there's also another brilliant um, individual that I follow on LinkedIn. Um, he is the director of the Purple Goat Agency. Oh yeah. And, yes, and I, I remember when they launched, which was really at the beginning of COVID, because I actually follow the Goat Agency, because I love their content. And then I remember when they launched Purple Goat Agency, and I was really genuinely intrigued and fascinated um, by how they had positioned themselves in the marketing industry. And it seems like such a no-brainer and also utterly ridiculous that people, for some reason, think that if you are disabled or have a disability, you're not living life like everybody yeah. else. And so nobody or brands in general are not marketing directly to this audience or including them as potential customers and, and service users. Mm -hmm. Completely agree. And, and yeah, no, I 100% agree. And there's also a misconception by organisations that disabled people, we don't have a spending power. Yes. Um, so we don't, you know, if we walk into a, I mean, I have a podcast is called part of me yes. um, and one of the episodes is with a man i'm not promoting i promise um, <laughs> and it's with a man called robert droy and he talks about this perception that, that he doesn't you know because he's a wheelchair user that he couldn't possibly have spending power and he talks about the fact that he used to wear unfortunately he passed away a couple of years ago but he used to wear really flamboyant shirts but when he would go into the shops and all buy these flamboyant shirts, they wouldn't take any notice of him until his partner, um, Garth, would come in. And then they would walk up to Garth and say, what would you like? And Garth would say, well, my husband is the person purchasing. And I think, you know, businesses are majorly missing a trick. And a lot of my work last year was going into retail um, and actually saying, do you realize you know what you're missing out on by not marketing not designing your shop literally to be accessible for a disabled person to go around i went into a um i did a review for a quite a high-end um retail, luxury retail in london 
and they said we need you to come in and do an access audit and I went in and said but Essie, we don't understand why disabled people are not coming in here and I said well first of all not all disabled people are visible so they might be coming in with hidden disabilities but secondly look at your shop how are they going to get around are you sure you want me to go around the shop because I can't guarantee that it will still be here at the end of it but this is the problem you yeah. know you have to actually the difference between disability and many other groups of people is that with disability, you have to make a physical effort as well to make sure that people are inclusive. It can't, I mean, obviously most of all of inclusion is about attitude, but with disability, it's also about accessibility. And so you can't just say you are welcome and then have a, a step yeah. because you're saying one thing, but showing another thing. Yeah, absolutely. Now, this is super relevant, what you've just touched upon here for the events industry, because obviously prior to everything being online at the moment, but having said that, as things go back, it will go to hybrid. You know, what considerations can event organisers who are organising in-person events in venues be considering? Because this is something that I honestly... A part of me is, is quite frustrated because I don't actually think it's as difficult as they make it out to be. But, you know, you <laughs> I don't think it is. But anyway, um, you know, what would you say are that the basics of ensuring, as you said, the difference between attitude and then accessibility for an in-person event? So I, I think it's about communication. I mean, obviously I was talking there almost almost um, entirely about physical disabilities. Yes. Physical disabilities are so important. However, also the importance is, you know, the hidden disabilities as well, obviously. So communication is the key, I think. I mean, not everybody, and I think what scares businesses is that they think, oh my gosh, if we say it, we have to do it. We have to change overnight. We have to be perfect. And it's not about being perfect. Yes, you should be making, as a business, you should be making a conscious effort to move forward in the right direction, to be in accessible um, in that inclusive way. But you, uh, but disabled people understand that you know nothing's going to happen overnight. Um, so if you are a small venue, for example, um, that's not bringing in a lot of income, if you're honest with people and say, you know, this is what we do have, this is what we're going towards, can you work with us to help us get there? So if, for example, I as a wheelchair user wanted to go to a venue that wasn't, you know, 100% accessible, you know, if that venue perhaps is willing to change the room, to change the venue so that I could attend, that would be, you know, that would really help. But I think communication is really the key explaining what you're doing explaining where you want to get to and what support you've got available for people is so important um, I could go into lots of detail but then I think the event itself is really important making sure I think there's a big mix misconception that accessibility and inclusion just like diversity and inclusion they're the same thing obviously they're not accessibility and inclusion are also not the same thing and people people get mixed up between accessibility and inclusion right. and people think that that you have to do they either get mixed up or they think that they're, they're completely different things and you can do one and not the other but you can't be inclusive if you're not accessible 
because as I always say, you know, if you invite me to the table to be part of the conversation, but then the room where the table is, is up a flight of stairs and you haven't got a lift, then how can I be included in that conversation? So you have to make sure that it's also accessible for people. And that could be the physical environment of the building and the room, but it also can be the way that the, your presenters are presenting. So if they're using PowerPoint slides, how many, how much content in terms of words are on those slides? How much needs to be there? How are they communicating with the audience what the slide's saying? Um, if you're doing a task, for example, how have you set up that task so that everybody, are you, are you saying quickly, we've got two minutes, get into groups and we'll do this exercise, then we'll come back in which case your disabled person um, cannot get to the back of the room fast enough. Or are you saying, write this down really quickly, in which case your perhaps blind person or your person with dyslexia can't access it. Or are you saying, watch this video and the video has no subtitles and you, you have um, a hearing impairment and all these small things, and they are small things that, that businesses and, and events organizations can re organizers sorry can think about they don't take a lot of money to change um, and they don't actually take a lot of time to implement I mean even things like the food that's being provided I mean one of these things that I love about remote working is that I can go along to events and not worry about the food or people looking at me while I'm trying to eat something yeah there's no food anyway um but one of the things that I find difficult is getting to the buffet and getting the food so what I tend to do is eat beforehand right. um, if I know I can't, but then everybody else feels awkward because they're eating and I'm not. So either find a way to talk to the person to become comfortable with the fact that I'm not eating because I don't mind I'm not eating <laughs> or make sure that your buffet is accessible yes. and inclusive for all or don't have a buffet. Yes. Yeah. I mean, if it's <laughs> a publicity stunt, it would be much more beneficial as a publicity stunt to say we're not having food at this event so that we can be truly inclusive until we can find a way to be inclusive of everyone yeah absolutely so these are really good practical points and so my next question then is for you in the virtual world that we've been in for at least this year because and what I will pre you know premise this was by saying is that there has been this narrative that oh great we're now virtual and remote so this must be brilliant for disabled persons what has been the reality for you in terms of attending events or just showing up in a virtual world has it been easy or have there still been um challenges um or things that event organizers could have thought about when you know when they were creating this virtual event well, first of all, can I just say that, you know, I agree with you that the assumption is, oh, with disabled people, they'll feel more included, they'll feel better about themselves because we're all online. Actually, I really miss going out to businesses. I mean, it's easier because I can get more done because the travel isn't there, but that's the same for everyone. But I really miss um, communicating or not communicating on the train with strangers. I really miss going to Yosushi on my way back from an event. <laughs> I really miss all those things about actually just living your life. So because I'm disabled doesn't mean I prefer to be in the house all the time. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, I think you know, in some ways it has been easier because you can just rock up. Um, I, I've, tried, I've been looking at it from 
um, a dyslexic person's point of view recently because I have a friend um, who is severely dyslexic. So I've been helping her to put adverts out for a new PA um, and realizing that actually, unless you can come onto a new screen and quickly scan the screen to find where the buttons are, to find what you have to do to read the instructions, it's really inaccessible. Um, so I can do exactly what I just said, but she can't because she can't physically read it. She's not blind, but she can't physically read it because she's dyslexic. Um, so she would need somebody there. And the assumption is, oh, disabled people can do it themselves now, but that's not the case. Um, when it comes to physical disability, quite a lot of these platforms don't have that keyboard accessibility that we're used to. And in the wake of all these new platforms coming out, obviously Zoom was here before, but it's blown up. But now these little platforms where you can actually walk around and interact on the screen, not accessible. I've said, to, I've asked kind of the platform owners, what have you done about inclusion and accessibility? Nothing. Yes, Essie. No, yes. Great. no, I can't. Well, then how, you know, how am I ever going to buy your product? Because if my job is to influence the businesses to be accessible, you know, I, you know, I'm saying do what I say, not as I do. Absolutely. So people, again, you know, going back to your earlier question of marketing, people again are missing a trick because they're forgetting about the influential aspects of all of this. Yes, absolutely. Do you know what? So glad that you are asking the question. You know, I hosted a panel um, at a recent event, Tech Live event, where we talked about inclusivity and technology specifically. And it was fascinating. Um, we had, you know, various perspectives. So we talked about language, we talked about um, hearing impairment, we talked about quite a few things. And this is an area, there's so much growth in it for technology companies. And it just seems mm -hmm. like they're overlooking it completely, yeah. much like they overlook, you know, Gen Z, much like they overlook, for example, people of color in terms of consumers. They are overlooking individuals who are disabled, who have spending power. I mean, whichever technology company comes up with something that is truly, you know, actual practically accessible I think they're going to be in for a nice surprise so, so one of the things I am keen to ask you though is, is that um, when I've spoken to other um, practitioners in this space of inclusion who have focused on disability one of the things which I found quite interesting uh, that was, 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 was remarked was that it's not really the responsibility or the prospective employee who might have a disability, it's not for them to declare it. Mm -hmm. It's something that an employer should ask about and then ask very specifically what are your specific needs so that the employer can meet those needs. And I wanted to ask, for me, that was, you know, one of the first times I'd heard that, because obviously in other areas of diversity, I suppose you don't really need to ask somebody necessarily if, you know, you, but then you do. But I don't think it's as explicit as yeah. that. So I'm really interested to hear your perspective on this. How can an employer, okay, um, let's say they've managed to recruit more diversely and they may have a candidate or a new employee that might have a disability, invisible or visible, how do they approach that situation if the potential employee doesn't or chooses not to declare the disability? So I think you have to go right back to even before you put your job advert out, right, right. back to you thought about recruiting. You have to remember that not all disabled people are confident. So 
I call myself a, um, I forgot. <laughs> I call myself a professional disabled person because I am disabled and I choose to work in the profession of disability inclusion. And therefore, I, it, it, um, it comes with a level of confidence that I have about asking for what I need and demanding what I need. Um, but not all disabled people are like this. As disabled people, we, have, we are brought up just like I was brought up, um, being told that we are the ones that are wrong, that the world isn't wrong, that it's us that has to change to be part mm. of the world. And then people grow up thinking, oh my gosh, you know, I, you know, it's bad, I'm bad, I can't. So I can't is kind of the main um, dialogue in people's heads. So when it comes to applying for roles, they already have that dialogue, not, oh my gosh, this is brilliant, I can definitely do this. I would love to do this, but I can't. Right. So before even you put your advert out, you have to think about that and think about how can I mitigate it? So you're not talking to your, your individual saying, oh, you can, you can, come on, you can. I'm not saying that. And I do not like the phrase, the only um, disability is a bad attitude, because that kind of leads to believing that disability isn't real and all of those things, which is very, very dangerous. But what I am saying is think about what you want out of that role. Right. So for I will apply for a role, whether I'm qualified or not, because I know that I have the experience and I know that I can be good at it. But not everybody will, disabled or otherwise, not everybody will. So if you're putting, for example, in your role, you must have a um, two one BA in whatever subject, do you really need that for the person to carry out that role? If you don't take it out, it, it maybe tell them instead what you do need so must be a good good at communicating with people must be good at galvanizing and leading a team or whatever it is but really break down what it is you actually need and take out all that fancy stuff yeah and that's the first thing you need to do and again you know the basic things like must be able to drive why must you be able to drive you need to get somewhere <laughs> yes but do you need to drive there? No, it doesn't matter whether I fly in a plane, walk, or jump, hitch a ride on a bus, as long as I'm there, you don't care, on time. Yes. So think about exactly what you need in your role. And then advertise where the people that you're looking for, if you want a more diverse workforce, don't just advertise in those usual places. Think actually, is this promoting to people of diversity? Is this promoting to an inclusive gr a, a group of people that are going to see how inclusive we are? If it's not, maybe put it there, but also put it somewhere else. Right. The reason why people get the same people all the time is because they're asking the same groups to advertise the roles for them. And therefore they're never getting yes. that kind of diverse um, candidate. So go to places, if we're talking about disability, go to specific places that support advertising um, and recruiting of disabled people. Um, on your careers page, tell people what your um, values towards disability and disabled people and inclusive cultures are and why they are. It's not just, oh, we are inclusive, or why should I believe you? We are inclusive because blah, blah, blah. Um, and use kind of pa um, positive rather than passive language. So we don't discriminate. Oh, whoop-de-doo for you. We are <laughs> amazing. You know, it's very, you know, there's subtle differences, but they make a massive 
different. Um, and then you've got the recruitment process, which also needs to be fully accessible for disabled people. Right. So these um, forms that you fill in online, they're not accessible for people because quite often screen readers can't use them. They can't read the questions. Um, Text-to-speech text um, software can't write in the boxes. So if you can't apply for the job, then you're not gonna get the role. Um, also think about the way that you're framing your questions. So somebody with a neurodiverse disability or autism might not be able to tell you about a situation when, but they would be able to show you. So how can you change the questions that you're asking to find out the answers that you want, but also to make sure that it's inclusive. And also, again, not specifically on disability, but the, the questions about what gender are you? What does that matter? And actually, what if you don't identify as a gender on the form? Where does that leave you then? Yes. And where do you live? Well, I'm not telling you. What are you going to do? Come around and nick You know, it doesn't matter. These are all ways of, of asserting bias over people, as I'm sure you've talked about a lot before. Yeah. Um, and all of those things. Um, so I think those are the, 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 to begin with, those are the things that you can do to be more inclusive in the recruitment stages for disabled people. Yeah, and brilliant. And important thing is telling people what support you're going to offer them. Yes. So, um, on the form, when people are applying for a role, if you're struggling to fill in this application form for any reason, please contact this team of people on this number. Make sure that team of people is ready to answer specific questions relating to what people might ask. Don't don't be the team that says, "Oh, I don't know. Yes. I'm not sure." That make sure they're prepared. And I think you know your original question because I might have gone off the topic. That's okay. <laughs> your original question about you know how do you support people that might not be disclosing their disability. I agree, it's always important to remember it's personal choice. People don't disclose their disability for so many reasons, one of which I've already discussed, um, that they feel, you know, they feel that they're not worthy as a disabled person, but also it's a reason to discriminate. Mm. And also um, it's not, not everybody identifies as being disabled. Um, so by asking, do you have a disability or do you identify as having a disability? Somebody might say no, but they still have access requirements. Yes. Um, and it's illegal anyway in the, the recruitment and the application stage or any stage to ask somebody if they're disabled. Um, so what you want to find is whether they have any support requirement. So are there any access requirements you would like us to be aware of in relation to the application and interview? Right. Process? So that's that's so that's really interesting, super specific question. Um, yeah. There, right there. Right. See, I, mean, that... could, I mean, that could cover everything and it's not making any assumptions. So, yes. I mean, I could say, yes, I need uh, um, I'm a wheelchair user, so I need a lift in the building. But somebody else might say, yes, I need to have the interview before two o'clock because I have to pick my children up from school. Yes, um, yes. But, but I think the important thing to note is you can't ask, you can only ask about access requirements in relation to what you're doing. So you right. can't say what are your access requirements once you get the job until that person's got the position. But then you're right, it's all, it is the employer's responsibility to ask. And the way that they're going to have that kind of engaged conversation 
is to do everything that I was talking about before, is to show that they're inclusive, to show they value difference and disability. Because if somebody's saying, oh, what do you need, Essie? Um, oh my God, we're gonna have to sort it out with such pain. I'm gonna be like, oh, I'm not interested. Yeah. But if actually you're positive about it, then I want to tell you because I know that it's going to be a positive reaction. Um, and the important thing to remember also is that disability changes over time and roles change over time. So if taking me as an example again, I might be in a role where when I started, I didn't actually know what I needed because I've just started the role. Six months later, I might know my role. So mm. I need to again. Six months later, my role might have progressed. So I need to have that conversation again. Six mm. months later, something personal might have happened and I need to have that conversation again. So keeping that conversation going all the time, not only make sure that your disabled person has what they need when they need it, but also encourages every part of that workforce to understand that you are an inclusive employer that wants to do the best by your employee. Mm. Um, Thank so you for that. Acquires a disability along the line, they know that they can come to you because they've seen what's been happening. Yeah, absolutely. No, that makes sense. And thank you for sharing that because I'm always interested in, you know, the, 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 it's really important, I think, because look, ultimately, you know, there are a lot of employers who don't know how to approach this. And also, you know, certainly in the events industry, there are a lot of, a lot of it is private, independent, founded businesses. And so these cultural elements are things that they are working on over time. Sometimes when they get to a stage where they're being funded or they're being acquired, and that's when they're starting to have this culture conversation and looking at, okay, in the past, we haven't done X, Y, Z. And I can certainly say as a small business employer as well, it's not easy trying to do everything that needs to be done as an employer. Um, you know, you know it's, so I really appreciate you sharing those practical tips because it will definitely be, be valued by our listeners. So thank you so much, Essie. It has been a true pleasure to see you again and to have a chat with you thank you for joining us on the podcast well not at all i really enjoyed it thank you very much for having me. <laughs>